This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 5th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm joined by Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Dr. Zarir Udwadia. Zarir is a pulmonologist in Mumbai with a busy practice at the Hindrinja Hospital. He's also a prolific researcher. He's been particularly active in describing drug resistance in tuberculosis and advocating for its treatment together with HIV-TB co-infection. During the COVID-19 outbreak, he's been conducting clinical research, advising the Indian government, and caring for patients during the current massive surge in cases. Zarir, we're hoping to get your perspective on what's currently happening in India. But before we do, let's discuss some vaccine news. Today, we published a letter and an article to help us understand how well vaccines can protect against the B1351 variant that was first described in South Africa. What did we know going into this? Steve, as we've discussed in the past, the B1351 variant appears to be the most difficult of the current variants to be neutralized by serum induced by the current vaccines. And we've got some data from subgroup analysis of clinical trials that we've seen before. We saw that a subgroup of patients from South Africa in a multicenter trial of ad 26 covid 2 s the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, appears to be reasonably well-protected, while in a different trial, people who received CHADOX-1, the AstraZeneca vaccine, had little, if any, protection. It's clear that not all vaccines provide equivalent protection against this variant. It's a little difficult to generalize from this to other variants, but as of now, this is the one that's the most challenging that's also become widespread. And then what did we learn from the research letter about the real world effectiveness of vaccines in the face of the spread of these viral variants? This letter describes what happened in Qatar, which began administering the BNT162B2 vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, toward the end of December. And as of the end of March, had vaccinated hundreds of thousands of individuals already. This was occurring in the background of the introduction of two variant viral strains into the population. First, the B117 variant, which had first been described in the UK, and then the B1351 variant. Both of these spread rapidly, and since March 7th, all sequence strains have belonged to one of these two lineages. The researchers took advantage of what they have in Qatar, a centralized national database that contains all vaccine records and all the results of PCR tests for the virus, along with the reason that the test was administered. Although they didn't have sequencing information available for most infected individuals, they were able to use results of one of the PCR tests, which is positive for B1351, but negative for B117, as a proxy for sequencing. Using these data, they estimated the vaccine effectiveness was almost 90% for B117 and 75% for B1351 for those who received two doses of vaccine. Importantly, the vaccine was more than 97% effective at preventing severe or fatal disease caused by any viral strain. The other study looked at a vaccine that hasn't been approved yet. What do we know about NVX-CoV-2373? Steve, this vaccine is produced by the company Novavax. It's a protein vaccine. In general, there are two ways to make these sorts of vaccines. One is simply to inactivate the virus, usually with a chemical like formaldehyde. This results in a vaccine that contains all of the viral proteins, but depending on the inactivation method that's used, these might or might not preserve the appropriate antigenic structures. This is a strategy being taken by the Chinese Coronavac vaccine, which is used in a number of countries. Novavax uses an alternative strategy. 
they started with purified spike protein and insert that into a micellar nanoparticle. Both of these strategies are the basis for many of the older vaccines. In fact, most existing vaccines that are inactivated vaccines use one of these two strategies. I mean, I think, Eric, what we see here are examples of efficacy versus effectiveness. High quality clinical trials like the Novavax trial that you just discussed help us understand some degree of the efficacy of a given construct here, a protein-based vaccine. And what we see in Qatar is how does deployment of a vaccine like one of the mRNAs impact disease and significant illness uh, across the country given their comprehensive surveillance system? And I think both lines of data are very important. They tell us something different. But I think it's something we have to think long and hard about from a public health standpoint, is how we interpret data on infection and mild to moderate illness versus preventing severe illness hospitalization. And so I think that these data help inform our thinking, although inadequate, they're important advances to the discussion about how do we use the vaccines available And how do we think about moving forward vaccines that show promise, particularly with different technology, such as a protein construct? It's an interesting time because here in the U.S., we actually have plenty of vaccine. In fact, there's some question, as you know, Lindsay, as to whether or not we can convince enough people to take the vaccine that we have so that it can be used. But that's certainly not true worldwide. And as we'll get into our discussion with Zareer later, there's an enormous need worldwide for vaccines. So I think that we have two issues. One is producing enough vaccine. And the second is placing our bets or covering the entire ground so that we know that among the technologies we're using, we have something that's going to be durable and that's going to hold up as the disease evolves over time. And it begs the question of what is protection and how do we measure protection and how do we interpret serologic or neutralizing antibody endpoints against viral strain A versus viral strain B and how this then correlates with how our vaccine behaves in the community. And will these endpoints be the same for different vaccine constructs? Will they be the same for different viral variants that emerge and circulate. And it'll be an ongoing discussion and scientific dance with the virus to understand how best to control, contain, and prevent illness. I've got to say, it's a little bit disappointing for many people that we don't have good correlates of immunity, even for the vaccines that are being widely used. And so these kinds of studies that measure real world effectiveness are very important and, of course, much more convincing than in vitro studies looking at humoral immunity or even cell-mediated immunity. Do the vaccines work? We can tell, perhaps retrospectively, why they worked. But for now, this kind of information is critical. So getting back to the Novavax study, it was part of a phase two trial of the vaccine. What did we learn in that trial? This trial looked at the efficacy of the vaccine in South Africa. It's not the real world effectiveness kind of data that Lindsay and I were just discussing. This is within a trial. It was a modest sized trial. The investigators randomized two groups, each containing more than 2,000 individuals, 
to receive either the vaccine or placebo. And remember that this is about 10 times smaller than a phase three trial would be. Nevertheless, it's a good number of people. The participants in this trial were overwhelmingly black Africans. They administered two doses of the vaccine and then measured the ability of that vaccine to protect against symptomatic COVID-19 starting a week after the second dose. And they limited their analysis to participants who were seronegative at baseline, which was the majority of participants, but there were many who had been previously infected and had evidence of antibodies to the spike protein. In a post hoc fashion, they also sequenced the virus that they recovered from patients who became infected to determine which viral variants were causing the infections. They also assessed safety, though the relatively small study meant that they can only detect the most common adverse events. With that limitation, the vaccine appeared to be fairly safe. It caused the usual complement of local and systemic reactions, the ones that generally resolve quickly, but there were no other marked safety signals. And the vaccine worked. It had an estimated efficacy of 50% in people who had no evidence of previous infection. Now that number sounds low as compared to the others we've heard, but some of that might well be because of the variant that was circulating at the time. More than 90% of infections in both the vaccine and placebo groups were caused by B1351, the most divergent of the common viral variants, as we already mentioned. But of course, these are very early data. The Novavax vaccine is not yet approved and available anywhere, and we do not have phase three data for this vaccine yet. Nevertheless, it's encouraging that several different strategies do seem to be working at least moderately well to protect against this difficult variant. I think these data are much more informative than when the study was initially conceived. What I mean by that is the study was conceived months ago when the primary circulating strains were not these variants or 351. Therefore, the primary question was likely targeting how the vaccine works for what was then the more traditional circulating strain. What has occurred is while the study was being launched and conducted, this more pathogenic strain, 351, emerged. And by accident, we're able to see the activity of this vaccine against a heterologous viral challenge, so to speak. And it shows some diminution of the activity of the vaccine. On the other hand, Eric, as you point out, against more serious illness, the immunity elicited by this construct seems very encouraging, giving us a lot to learn about what kind of immunity do we need to afford protection that we care about. This becomes very complicated for public health officials to incorporate these data and for us to strategize about which vaccines to go to scale most rapidly. But it gives us real world evidence about protection and protection for endpoints that we care about. And we now need to incorporate this into our planning as well as our planning for the next set of viral variants that may emerge as we're witnessing in other parts of the world. Lindsay, you bring up an important point that we have discussed before, what do you want your vaccine to do? There are two things you'd like it to do. For you as an individual, of course, you'd like to be protected against disease, particularly against severe disease. And if the vaccine turned COVID-19 into the common cold, that would be fine with you. From a public health standpoint, of course, we want to limit transmission. Now, most of what we've looked at 
is disease. That's the major endpoint of all these studies. We still know a limited amount about transmission. Obviously, having the first part is critical. Having a vaccine that protects against the potentially lethal effects of the infection is the most important part. And that we seem to have. And as you pointed out, that we seem to have even for this very difficult variant. Blocking transmission and having the public health effect of trying to wipe out the disease, however, we know less about. And it's likely that there still is some transmission from vaccinated individuals. We just don't know how much. And I just want to remind everyone, there are several coronaviruses that have caused the common cold for decades that we didn't care about. And if we're able to transform this coronavirus into that clinical phenotype, that would be a major victory. Obviously, we'd love to eradicate it, but if we turn it into the other routine coronaviruses that we're used to, that would not be such a terrible outcome. I think what's really important from these kinds of data from the Novavax study and Qatar are how do we understand which immune parameters inform us about what leads to the protection we care about. And we're used to doing preclinical models and deriving from them the perfect therapy that we then move forward. Here, we're doing real-world field trials and then going backwards and understanding the mechanisms or correlates of protection. I think that we have to deal with the reality of this virus, but it's unusual for us to be working backwards in this way. I think it's important and it's really important for us to be able to do all the bridging studies necessary in order to extend these vaccines to other populations that we can't do field trials and easily, such as children, pregnant women, or immunocompromised patients. And so that the data that we're able to derive from these more formal experiments will allow us to extend these vaccines to very important populations where we have limited data. So coming back to what's happening now, at this point, the most hard hit area in the world is India. The case rates have risen dramatically along with hospitalizations and deaths. And despite the fact that India has an enormous vaccine industry, the rollout of vaccines has been very slow. So Zarir, what does the situation look like right now in Mumbai? The situation is grim, uh, to say the least, in Mumbai and right across India. We reached a total of 20 million cases just today. I think this morning it was. And it's sad to see a country of 1.4 billion literally brought to its knees gripped in the stranglehold of this virus. You know, as a TB researcher, I never imagined I would see in my lifetime an airborne pathogen more deadly than TB and MDR-TB. How wrong I was. The situation is beyond crisis point. As I said in a comment to the BBC a few days ago, beds in hospitals have been completely overwhelmed. That's one thing. But just the lack of oxygen, that very elixir of life, is just too horrific to even imagine. In hospital, across hospitals, across the country, deaths occur in ICUs because oxygen supplies are literally running out. I mean, who would think that death by asphyxiation can occur in a country with superpower pretensions? What do other patients do? They're forced to sit it out at home and they can't get oxygen cylinders there. They're sold at exorbitant black market rates. An O2 concentrator is a luxury, bartered again at black market rates. And all in all, the situation is just horrific, incomprehensibly grim. Zarir, I'm curious about the situation in your hospital. 
is this an uneven distribution of oxygen or is this really affecting everybody equally? It's affecting everyone. So what we have done is stopped using central oxygens, moved to concentrators and giving the more mild to moderate cases about three or four liters at the very most on an O2 concentrator, conserving our uh, central oxygen for the most sick patients in ICU. We have regular audits of oxygen consumption on a day-to-day basis. And late last night, I got a call saying that in one of the hospitals I worked at, we were two hours away from oxygen supply being terminated. Now, I've got a lady on ECMO in that hospital. I've got patients on 100% oxygen, high-flow oxygens. And it was appalling. I mean, you had to chase every contact you knew in a desperate attempt to just get oxygen to get you through one more day. So it is being rationed, but it is a desperate situation. Is it being rationed at the government level, the hospital level, the provider level? Is there a system that guides the rationing or is it a free-for-all? It is a free-for-all, basically. Each hospital is desperately competing to get oxygen delivered to it by the government, by the municipal corporation. And that supply is very patchy because the central source is just not there. Singapore is actually sending tankers full of oxygen on special planes. I mean, who would thought that we'd need to import air? And it is sad, isn't it? Zarya, what do you think underlies the rapid increase in cases in India? Well, there are too many errors to catalog. But if I can be frank, I think first and foremost is complacency and lack of planning. You know, by January 2021, this year, cases across the country were genuinely dropping to very manageable levels. We were seeing about 10,000 cases every day across the country, which is nothing. Now, instead of girding our collective loins at that stage, preparing for the second wave, which was almost certainly inevitable, wasn't it? The government sat back. We basked in global praise. We accepted credit for what, in my mind, was just the natural ebb and flow of the virus or just good old-fashioned luck, if you want. Look, this was when we needed to be ensuring oxygen plants increase their production. Vaccine supply was ramped up. Social distancing, masking messages were hammered home. Instead, what did we allow? We allowed massive election rallies in five huge states. Each one of these states is bigger than most EU countries, by the way. We allowed a huge confluence of 3.5 million pilgrims at a religious festival at Uttar Pradesh along the banks of the Ganges, the Kum Mela. And it's sad but true that in India, religious sentiments and nepotism and political machinations Trump, public health principles, and just good old common sense. So complacency, lack of planning. And then, of course, we must talk of variants, like you did at the start of this podcast. And there's little doubt in my mind, as a physician who spent the last 400 days battling this virus, that this wave seems to be caused by a completely different strain. Now, when I say seem to be caused, the sad truth is we just don't know. We are so behind, so backward. Our basic science community has let us down because we probably have done sequencing on less than 0.01% of all our strains across the country. So we just don't know whether this present wave is driven by the British variant, whether it's driven by the so-called double mutant or the B1.617 lineage. That, as you know, has a double mutation E484Q and L452R. But what I can say as a clinician and an observation I can make is that this strain seems to be far, far more infectious. Why do I say that? If one person in a family has this, this time round, I can almost be certain 
that the whole family will get down with the virus. It is that much more noticeably infectious. And you know, with India's crowded houses and communities, this is a wildfire situation. I would also guess, and again, this is not stuff that Eric would get into the New England Journal of Medicine, but I would also guess that this does seem to be a more virulent strain. I'm seeing more sick people this time. I'm seeing the demand for ventilators skyrocketing. A ventilator bed, by the way, is just close to impossible to get anywhere in the country right now. And I also feel that it is affecting the young more. And I don't think that's just because the vaccine has been given to more old people, because we'll talk later about vaccines and the penetrance has been poor across the population. But I've had far more deaths in this second wave, tragically, in those in their 30s, in their 40s. So it does seem to be more infectious. It does seem to be more virulent. And it does seem to be affecting the younger more than the older in this second wave. But those are just clinical observations from a physician who's been looking at cases right from the start of this pandemic. Zareer, as a basic scientist who spent some time in India, I'm well aware of the very strong and huge basic science capacity in India. What, what happened here? Why aren't those strains being sequenced? I think projects are being set up, but you know how the UK has an ongoing daily surveillance system. That's the kind of thing you need as a second wave rolls out, surely. So the ICMR has set up a project, but it's looking at small pockets across the country. I've just got data on my desk from about 30 states, which says that fortunately, for example, the South African variant is almost not seen at all. Zero to 1.5% was the prevalence, the highest in Kerala. And uh, that's fortunate because the Chadox-1 vaccine, which is the main vaccine in this country, is not effective, as we know, against that strain. But we have very patchy surveillance from across states in the country. We don't have any nationwide sequencing project. And surely that is the scientific need of the hour. So why has the introduction of vaccines been so slow in India? That is another sorry saga, and it makes my blood boil. It's a scandal all of its own. So look, we basked in our vaccine superpower status, and we just did not get our basic math correct. We failed to realize that a country the size of India would need, I would say, about 1.6 billion doses to inoculate its vast population two times over. Instead, our chief vaccine manufacturer, the Serum Institute of India, Pune, was given an order by the government of just 15 million. Now they're desperately being told to ramp up capacity, ramp up capacity. It's too late. You can't do that in an instant with something as complex as vaccine production. We did not allow any other foreign manufacturer entry. Isn't it sad that Pfizer was keen to give lots of vaccines, but we denied them the license and instead of wooing them, turned them away. And then with generosity bordering almost on the insane, we donated vaccines to 90 countries, neighbors, political goodwill, neighbors, other countries as well, so that around the mid of March, we had donated more vaccines than we had actually used in our own population. Then there has been great vaccine hesitancy, as there has been in parts of the US and parts of Europe as well. But that, of course, has now been replaced by vaccine desperation. And each of the three hospitals I work at also serves as a vaccine center. And there are desperate queues, almost wild mobs, no luxury of six feet distancing or three meter distancing. And I do believe that vaccination sites are also super spreader events. 
you know, Eric, common sequence is you go for your first shot of vaccine, eight days later, you get COVID, or five days later, or 10 days later, you get COVID. And this ends up giving the vaccine a bad name when really they probably contracted the virus in our super crowded vaccine centers. So in a sense, doing more harm than good. What I'm also seeing, and this is most frightening, is people getting bad infection. We talked about the ultimate aim of a vaccine, whichever it is, keeping you out of the morgue and keeping you out of the ICU. Well, I am seeing people in the morgue and in the ICU six weeks, a full six weeks after they've received one of the two Indian vaccines. Now that is frightening because for example, with the Oxford vaccine, the UK and Spain, I know, are allowing one to three months even between the first and second doses. But I'm seeing people who after six weeks, when you would expect a good antibody response to have set in, such patients still coming in, not just contracting mild COVID, but coming in with severe COVID, needing the ICU, needing the ventilator. And finally, of course, we therefore don't know how these two available vaccines hold up against the variants. I know Dr. Fauci made a plug for the indigenous COVAX and its efficacy against the double mutant, but uh, I couldn't find a paper to back that claim, really. So sadly, what we've seen is that about, I would say less than 5% of the Indian population is vaccinated. And if you punch that into this lovely app called Time to Herd, which you must all have seen, it sadly shows that we are 700 days away from herd immunity, conservatively put at 70% receiving a vaccine. So we've got miles to go, haven't we? Zarir, you've spoken eloquently about the lack of resources to care for the very large number of patients that you're facing. How much is this a COVID-specific problem in India, and how much is it due to underlying issues in healthcare? That's a good point. We've chronically underinvested in healthcare. We spend less than 1.4% of our GDP on public healthcare, and all that is coming back to haunt us. You know, we are trying to get medical students to double up. We're getting non-allopathic doctors of all faiths and persuasions. We're trying to get retired physicians to step in. There is a huge manpower crunch as well. And we have chronically underinvested, as I said, in basic things like manpower and public health. Right now, is the issue a shortage of physicians or a shortage of healthcare personnel? It sounds as if there's a shortage of a lot of things going on. You're quite right, Eric, but my colleagues on my COVID rounds are a neurosurgeon, an orthopod, a pediatrician, a palliative care specialist. So everyone is rolling up their sleeves and pitching in, but uh, it's exposing the, for example, the great gaps in the number of chest physicians, ID specialists, and intensivists who really should be at the front of this battle. Sir, you point out a much bigger problem, which is just the physical infrastructure You've vaccinated a small number of your population, yet in the process of vaccinating them, you paint a picture of crowded situations that are super spreader events. And without the right infrastructure to be able to deliver vaccine or deliver care, the downstream realities get worse. Absolutely. I see these beautiful pictures of vaccine centers in Europe and the U.S., where you're respectfully masked up and keeping safe distance from one another. This is a chaotic stream, a melee of people just crowding around to be vaccinated. And bear in mind that no vaccine is going to save us from this second wave now. It's too late already. So it will maybe protect from the third wave when that inevitably sets in. But it is too late for this desperate population to be saved even now by the vaccine. Though, of course, as a priority, we need every school, every general practitioner's clinic 
to be doling out the vaccine, but that's if we had enough of it in the first place. So on yesterday, I think we had 400,000 cases, which was a global record across the country, but it was also paradoxically the day when vaccinations were at their lowest. Only about five or six centers throughout Mumbai, a city of 15 or 20 million, actually had any stock of vaccine. Now this is controlled by the government. So the government will distribute it to the state and the state will distribute it to different vaccine centers. So from the top up, there has been a screw up. Your description of what's going on at vaccine centers raises the question, Zareer, of what's going on in terms of public health measures. Do people wear masks? Are people getting the message that they should be wearing masks and avoiding crowds at this point? At this point in time, everyone is masked. The roads are deserted except for ambulances wailing around with sirens. But I see every single person who I pass on the otherwise empty streets masked up just now. But it's too late for that again. What needed to have been done was really, as I said, around January or February was a wonderful period of time. And when physicians asked me from all over the world, how did you do so well? How did you get rid of this virus? The honest answer, of course, was that we lucked out, really. I think it was just the natural uh, ebb and flow of this disease. And that was the stage to, as I said, ramp up oxygen capacity, ramp up beds and ICUs. Not easy to do at short notice, but China has shown that it can be done. And of course, to hammer home the message of universal masking, double masking, if you will. But that just wasn't done. We let our guard down collectively, weren't instructed to do otherwise. I mean, you remind us, Zareer, of the interpandemic period. We've been dealing with this for decades, where we have a pandemic of some sort. We have a chaotic response locally, globally. The pandemic quiets down. We've seen this with Ebola, Marburg, among others. And then in the interpandemic period, we become complacent and focus on other priorities. With SARS-CoV-2, we've had surges and then they regress. And do we learn lessons from the surge to be able to plan and prevent the next surge? And I think what you're describing in India does not sound that different than in other parts of the world. Unfortunately, the variant circulating and the way in which it's transmitting is leading to a utter disaster. But this complacency when we seem to be gaining control is its own problem in diminishing our proper investment and planning. True. I enviously saw pictures of people in the UK, for example, thronging into pubs, into restaurants, at even a concert. And you wonder if that's wise, even though they are on top of the situation, have large percentages of their population vaccinated, you would feel the need to be more wary, even in this situation. Would you agree? I worry a lot about what is going on in parts of the world where congregating and congregating in indoor settings without masks right now, to me, is worrisome for igniting repeat transmission events. And this also has to be looked at in relation to forces beyond uh, simple social policy with weather. When it's sunny and warm out, such as in the summer here in the U.S., there's naturally more distance in how we interact and how that may be exacerbated in the winter when we then have crowding again. And we see this with influenza and other respiratory viruses. And my thinking is, I don't see why SARS-CoV-2 won't behave like respiratory viruses and therefore may take advantage of different aspects of human behavior. 
Yes, you talked of indoor overcrowding and remember that 50% uh, of Mumbai's vast population lives in slums or tenements, poorly ventilated, not uncommon to have eight or nine people sharing a room. And you can understand how a virus would thrive in a situation like that and explain the large numbers of cases we're encountering. You've already mentioned, Zareer, that you're seeing a lot of family transmission and these are conditions that should really lend themselves to that. Zareer, you've outlined a number of the domestic issues that are facing India right now. What can the international community do to help? That's a hard one for me to answer as a physician, but yes, we do need oxygen concentrators, ventilators, all urgently. But think of it, this is a drop in the ocean, isn't it? Uh, I mean, to distribute them across a country the size and scale of India, it's going to have a limited impact at this stage, according to me. Uh, the US is sitting on a pile of unused Astra Oxford vaccines, which I don't think they plan to use. Clearly, some die of too little, some of too much. And perhaps uh, I may be bold enough to say that these unused vaccines could be donated to countries like India. Many of them were manufactured here and then sent across. And that would be a big step forward, having access to, say, 50 million vaccines in a hurry, which uh, our own plants are not capable of doing at short notice. I also heard that the U.S. and the Biden administration was blocking supplies or not blocking, but had not released supplies of some essential vaccine components. At least that's what the Serum Institute of India claimed. And this also was contributing to slowing down vaccine production. Perhaps they might take note of that and release these. And then the vaccines are protected by strict patent laws under the TRIPS agreement, as you all know. India and South Africa have pleaded at the WTO for a waiver of these patents. So manufacturing could be ramped up by multiple providers. Now, I don't know if we have the know-how to use reverse engineer vaccination like this. We certainly did for HIV drugs. You know, Cipla, for example, was an Indian pharma company which took HIV drugs cheaply and off patent across the world. But perhaps on a broader scale, this would be another measure which might just help. But this grim wave that we find ourselves in the midst of, we're just going to have to fight off literally one-to-one -one because anything coming is going to be too late. I echo that. and I'm afraid that that depressing news is absolutely correct. We could get vaccines in tomorrow and they wouldn't have any effect at all on what's going on today. They wouldn't have an effect for months. Having said that, though, as you said, India has an enormous capacity to produce vaccines and drugs, perhaps the largest in the world. And it does seem like there's a missed opportunity here. I will say that, as you suggested, it's more than simply patents, though. There's the technology to make vaccines is also important, especially given the fact that some of the newer vaccines use technologies that are not currently employed for other vaccines. And so the effort to get vaccines made in India would require not only the intellectual property issues, but it would require help. And it'd be very nice to see that going on, even if it didn't make a difference today. So transfer of technology and scientific know-how. You're quite right, Eric. Zareer, getting back to Lindsay's point earlier, where a chaotic response is followed by complacency and the opportunity for yet another chaotic response when we have a resurgence, what should India and all of us learn from this? What could make a difference to the next outbreak or the next wave? What should we be doing? 
I think it would be foolish if we haven't learned uh, from what's happened, but everyone has short memories. One looks back to happier times and forgets how badly you've been battered. But I think really masking, for example, in the foreseeable future should just become a part of life is what I would say. And using the window of opportunity that a natural wave and ebb produces to shore up capacity and to really be ready for the next wave when it does come is what we all need to be doing. Thank you very much, Zaria, for joining us today. And thank you, as always, Eric and Lindsay.